good morning, and holy leaping lizards, in the words of the immortal little orphan Annie, it's leap day. So welcome to February 29th of leap year 2024, third Christian millennium. My name is Michael McCusker. Today is also the last day of Black History Month. And tomorrow, March 1st, begins the annual month of her story. The conjunction of women's essential, the contrarily disregarded role in American democracy with the equal inequality and rabid racism black Americans have endured in slavery and afterward since so-called emancipation and all issues of gender and racial injustice is manifest in two anniversaries, two days and 28 years apart. The first was 102 years and two days ago, on February 27, 1922. On that day, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously declared the 19th Amendment, the right of American women to vote, as constitutional after a 70-year fight for suffrage that essentially began at the 1848 Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. The 19th Amendment states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. On paper, at least, women were recognized after 135 years as constitutionally equal citizens with men. And today, in 1968, which as a leap year was also February 29th, the Kerner Commission, which was set up to investigate civil disorder in the USA, also known as Black Rage, put the blame of urban riots in the 1960s on white racism and warned of further polarization of violence unless, quote, drastic and costly remedies are undertaken, unquote. The Kerner Report warned rather foresightedly that if dramatic and rapid action was not taken to counteract the rampant white racism that was tearing the USA apart, quote, there would be continual polarization, unquote, and ultimately, again, a quote, the destruction of basic democratic values, unquote, which are indeed in incredibly rapid dissolution, precisely as predicted more than half a century and nearly a quarter into the first century of this brand new millennium. American history is taught from primarily a white perspective, which is only a portion of our history. And without integrating it with black American history, it is irrelevant and worse, it is a lie that perpetuates the racism that underlies and embitters our truly pluralistic history. African blacks and European whites were parallel colonizers of the Western Hemisphere, 
and together they built the civilizations that currently exist in North and South America. The primary difference is that black immigration was a forced migration. Millions of blacks were brought in chains from Africa as slaves for 400 years. Slavery evolved as a result of the need for an abundant and relatively cheap supply of labor in the American colonies, and the traffic in slaves was itself probably the most profitable international trade in history. Entire industries were built on the commerce of human slaves, and as cruel as it was, which induced an opaqueness to the torment inflicted by the trade, the extent and profitability of slavery built cities and helped raise the capital that started the Industrial Revolution in England. Much of Africa was emptied to provide slaves for the European colonies in the Americas, and most of Africa was colonized by European nations. Africans, who were not sent across the oceans as slaves, were enslaved at home. No one will ever know precisely how many millions of blacks were killed in their villages in four centuries of slave raids, but it is estimated that about one-third of those captured died en route to the coasts or while imprisoned awaiting embarkation, and another third aboard ships in which they were chained and stacked like cords of wood in overcrowded, filthy holds and during the seasoning process of slavery, worked to death in stifling climates, beaten and murdered if they were slow to obey or attempted to escape. When the slave trade was finally declared illegal at the end of the 18th century, its illicitness made it even more profitable in much the manner as the current international drug trade. And, as with illegal drugs, when capture is imminent, uncounted thousands of black men, women, and children were thrown overboard to drown in the ocean, chained together, whenever a naval patrol caught up with a slave ship. The trade was also profitable because it was easier to work a slave to death and buy a new one than it was to breed and feed newer generations, although that, of course, was also done. Slavery in the Americas took two separate directions. In the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in South and Central America, slavery continued the long tradition of Mediterranean slavery, practiced most famously in classical times, and was incorporated in the Iberian Catholic religious doctrine, which claimed that although slaves were of the lowest social order, both masters and slaves possessed souls that were regarded as equal by God. The tendency, therefore, was that slaves were human beings with some rights and some legal means by which they might achieve freedom. Roman slaves were granted not only freedom, but much prized Roman citizenship. The legal structure of the North American colonies and the British West Indies, and later the United States, 
did not recognize slaves as human beings entitled to human rights. The ancient and medieval experiences with slavery had been forgotten, and Northern Europe did not have a comparable tradition with the Iberian nations. There was no slave law and no concern for blacks in their religious doctrines. More problematic for the future was the tendency of Northern Europeans and Americans to identify blacks with slavery. The mere fact of being black was presumptive of slave status. Slavery was considered perpetual, and chances of working toward freedom were few. To be black was to be a slave, without rights to marriage, children, whose value was only as prospective slaves, property, or to the product of their work. Yet, despite the differences of the slave systems of South and North America, they were only differences of degree. Wherever there was slavery, there was a slave society, not merely for blacks, but for whites also. Blacks and whites were bound together in cruel and bitter antagonism, but also in a complex relationship that could not express itself without reference to each other. It was a class relationship that became ever more defined as a racial one. North American Southern society in particular was enclosed and closed off by its slave system. To quote C. Van Woodward, the ironic thing about these two great hyphenate minorities, Southern Americans and Afro-Americans, confronting each other on their native soil for three and a half centuries is the degree to which they have shaped each other's destiny, determined each other's isolation, shared and molded a common culture. It is, in fact, impossible to imagine the one without the other and quite futile to try. And that was C. Van Woodward. Southern Slave Society grew from the same historical conditions that produced the world's other slave regimes. The rise of a world market and the need for cheap labor encouraged slavery, and only the advent of mechanical technology and industrialism rendered it inefficient and ultimately incapable of competing in the very market that created it. The South was haunted by its guilt and fear of slavery. Enslaving blacks was justified through claims that it was God's intent that whites were superior to blacks, that slavery civilized blacks and elevated them above their former status as jungle savages, and that, in essence, whites were carrying out God's law by making slaves and Christians out of pagan blacks. In reality, southern plantations were battlefields where slaves fought masters for physical and psychological survival, and although they were unlettered, outnumbered, and unarmed, black slaves struggled in as many ways as they could to preserve their humanity against virtually inhuman odds. Southern whites bitterly resisted acknowledging the humanity of their black slaves a contradiction of their claim of God's edict to Christianize them.
underlying their pious justifications was a terror of the system they had fabricated. The culture of the antebellum South was continually in dread of slave insurrection, and any outbreak was savagely suppressed. In a sense, a reason for perpetuating slavery was the fear of reprisal once it was abolished. Most Northern whites also considered themselves superior to blacks, and the desire to abolish slavery had more to do with its interference with paid labor than with human rights. Even a majority of the Northern abolitionists who had risked imprisonment and their lives providing underground systems of escape for runaway slaves felt, as Abraham Lincoln, that blacks should dwell apart from whites. Yet, ultimately, however intense the economic dialectics regarding slavery, and perhaps because the climate of industrialism allowed it, the most important reason for the abolition of slavery was the moral one. The idea of the inherent value of an individual outlasted slavery and was the chief source of its undoing. There were many reasons for the division of the young nation, south from north, but at its core was the inhumanity of slavery. Frank Tannenbaum, in his book Slave and Citizen, wrote that inherent in the history of slavery was an important contribution to the theory of social change. Wherever the law accepted the doctrine of the moral personality, and that's a quote, of the slave, and made possible the gradual achievement of freedom implicit in such a doctrine, the slave system was abolished peacefully. Where the slave was denied recognition as a moral person and was therefore considered incapable of freedom, the abolition of slavery was accomplished by force, by violence and revolution. We cannot separate our history from the long centuries of slavery. Without black slaves from Africa, much of the Western Hemisphere would not have been converted into an enclave of European civilization. The fight for independence that characterized the American Revolution did not include liberty for slaves, and the oversight caused the Civil War 80 years later. Emancipation only brought a semblance of physical relief from slavery, but its underlying racialism has not been eradicated a century and a half and more later. If the class system of slavery is defined by color, then a post-slavery society becomes a form of apartheid, which has been the result in the United States since the Civil War and which was starkly dramatized in the violence unleashed against the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. We begin the third millennium of our era, still a divided nation. And as Lincoln said, though he was not the first to say it, a house divided will not long stand. Blacks as well as whites wish for separation, but there is really no other place to go. Just as whites are no longer Europeans, American blacks are not Africans anymore. For better or worse, blacks and whites are hybrid Americans.
slaves or free, the arduous, tragic, and unequal role of black Americans in building and defending the nation has always been devalued and generally ignored. Just as the word history seems to imply only male endeavor, his story, so does it also imply Western European white dominance and supremacy over world affairs. Yet the black struggle for civic and social equality, especially in the last generation, has been among the most inspiring and closest to the revolution of the Enlightenment that gave birth to the United States than any other. This struggle is a continuation of what Washington, Jefferson, Adams, et al. started and unfortunately denied people of color who were regarded as property rather than persons born equal and certainly not born free. Lincoln's executive order of emancipation went into effect January 1, 1863. Though it abolished slavery in the Confederate States, but not those under Union control, it was probably not legal, according to U.S. civil law, to remedy any deficiencies in the proclamation in regard to its legal standing. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution was introduced in Congress in 1864 and was ratified in 1865, the year the Civil War ended. It abolished slavery or involuntary servitude in the United States or anywhere under U.S. jurisdiction. The Emancipation Proclamation, although it raised the conflict for union to an issue of international moral principle, had little initial impact because Lincoln at the time had no authority in the Confederacy. Lincoln had proposed the proclamation the previous summer. Secretary of State Seward suggested he wait to announce it until a significant Union battlefield victory so that European governments would not misinterpret it as a final shriek in our retreat, quote-unquote. Lincoln had said at the start of the Civil War, if I could preserve the Union by freeing all of the slaves everywhere, I would do so. If I could preserve the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do so. If I could preserve the Union by freeing some of the slaves, I would do so. His critics and some supporters thought the proclamation was a cynical act by a weak, vacillating president. Yet by conceding to free the few, quote-unquote, he struck to the heart of the conflict and never afterward wavered from his promise. He got his victory at Sharpsburg, Maryland, on September 16, 1862, near a little creek and a church named after it that forever gave the battle its name, Antietam. The Union Army routed a Confederate invasion of the North. It was the single bloodiest day of the Civil War. At least 15,000 dead on both sides and another 20,000 wounded or missing. Union losses alone were twice as many as those of the Normandy D-Day landings 82 years later in World War II. Five days after Antietam, Lincoln issued his proclamation. 
On the first day of January, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall then be thenceforth and forever free. If my name ever goes into history, Lincoln said, it was for this act. It took a century and a Southern president, a member of the party of traitors, quote unquote, to take the next step of what emancipation began. Lyndon Johnson successfully pushed through Congress the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of 1965. He said, three and a half centuries ago, the first Negroes arrived. They came in darkness and in chains. The story of our nation and of the American Negro are, are like two rivers that flow through the centuries along divided channels. When the Liberty Bell rang out in Philadelphia, it did not toll for the Negro. When Andrew Jackson threw open the doors of democracy, they did not open for the Negro. It was only at Appomattox a century ago that an American victory was also a Negro victory, and the two rivers, one shining with promise, the other dark stained with oppression, began to move toward one another. Nor was there any freedom for Native Americans, whom President Jackson exiled to the far west and forced onto the Trail of Tears. Not all whites are racial supremacists, though most are racist, if not intentionally, usually on impact. Yet, although whites have fought for and some have died for civil rights for blacks, the prevailing white attitude toward blacks was summed up in 1857 by Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Roger Taney, when speaking for the majority in Dred Scott, he stated that Negroes were considered, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect, unquote. Racism will only end when children of every race are taught early that the color of skin is far less than the quality of hearts and minds. That will not be easy. No less than the essential education system of the USA must be uprooted and rewritten to reflect the common struggle of both races to build and survive in this country. Then perhaps Lyndon Johnson's two rivers might converge. We cannot escape history, Lincoln said to Congress. We will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trail through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. This is Michael McCusker. Today's program engineer is Jack Harris newly commissioned captain of the good ship KMUN, Free Radio Pacific. I dedicate today's program to the mirthful memory of W.S. Gilbert and Arthur Sullivan for their immortal comic opera centered around Leap Day, The Pirates of Penzance, which debuted in London at the Opera Comique on April 3, 1880, 
and has been performed all around the world since. You've been listening to A Story Told on KMUN, featuring Michael McCusker, journalist, activist, former firefighter, and Vietnam veteran. Michael has been sharing essays and poetry on A Story Told since 1987. For 30 years, he published the North Coast Times-Eagle newspaper out of his home in Astoria, Oregon. Michael currently shares his work and the works of other authors from his home on the Central Oregon coast. Join us here next week for A Story Told.